Fresh Prince. Even DJ Jazzy Jeff is gone. It's just the Fresh Prince. Something. This is what a great concept for a movie. I did not know about the zombies. You've seen the movie, right? Like I didn't know that. Like I feel like I that uh, that whoever the marketers of this movie kind of sold me up the river a little bit. I'm not a scary movie guy. You throw a witch in the woods. You. I mean, I just am not there. Just I, I like to avoid that. So the first time where the first zombie jumped out and went rar, which is a good like 25 minutes into the movie, I jumped like a little girl. So I may or may not have squealed and finished the movie, weirdly enough. Uh, normally I would have just left. I couldn't stop watching for some reason, but it was mostly my hand, ears plugged in, you know, eyes over my, I'm a grown man, right? Going, ah, I don't want the zombies to scare me. I just don't enjoy being startled, right? I don't genuinely don't enjoy that. So that, there was a moment in that movie where the revelation happened for me, right? Oh, that's what this was about. That also happened at the movie uh, Marley and Me. You see that one? Like, that was just cruel. We, it's Christmas Day. The Tylers are not Christmas Day movie people. But one year we thought, well, we'll just go be Christmas movie people. So we load up the, uh, the, the children's and we go to the movie. We, I think that was the year they were offering 60 days, same as cash on the popcorn. So we <laughs> financed that and we get all loaded in. And again, who, if you have not seen this movie, please cover your ears because spoiler alert. They kill the dog like on Christmas. They didn't say that in any of the commercials. All the little, like, Today Show, you know. Our biggest concern going in was this might be, uh, you know, a little more mature than what our children should. So we're more concerned about, you know, what Aniston's going to say or do or, you know. And, and so when they kill the dog, this revelation happened of, oh, of course, the revelation is happening while my entire family is weeping on Christmas. It's like Old Yeller. Do you know what I'm saying? Remember that one? Oh, gosh. We were completely unprepared for Old Yeller, for Marley and me, for I Am Legend. But what I, when I look at this book I, I, of Revelation, it's, there's a moment of uncovering there that's probably best summed up in the I See Dead People movie. Remember that one? Okay, the I See Dead People movie? Um, I have no idea what it was called, but Sixth Sense, yeah. Like where the gladiator comes in. No, what was Mel Gibson? Uh, he was the Patriot. So the Patriot is uh, talking to dead people. Oh, no, it's just Bruce Willis. It's a diehard guy. That's how disturbing this movie was for me. We're not, honest, we got four kids. We're not movie people. We can't afford it, but it's been that long. But do you remember, the, take yourself back, do you remember the moment when all of a sudden it was like, oh, you're dead. He's, this is awkward. He's the dead guy. The whole thing. And then the movie starts flashing back. She didn't pick up the bill at dinner. She didn't. I was like, oh, I missed it all. <laughs> Remember the moment? And it was kind of, for me, it was kind of exciting. And I also felt kind of stupid. But because it all suddenly made sense. Because it was unveiled in front of us. That's what Revelation is supposed to be for us. Is It's not false marketing like Marley and me or... I am legend, or, but it's like the, the I see dead people thing where I was like, oh, because what happens in the movie is it's kind of confusing. Like, why is it happening? What, what's the kid, little kid that, you know, that's the world that John was living in. There was some confusion that was happening. Jesus said, hey, I'm coming back soon. 
That was like 50 plus years ago for John. For us, it's 2,000 years ago. If you're John, you're like, hello. Like, if I were to say, hey, I'm going to go to the grocery store, I'll be back soon, what do you think I mean? Soon. If I'm going on a trip, I'll be back soon. You think, you know, hey, a couple weeks. Not 50 plus years. And you wonder, at least I wonder, maybe you don't, but wonder, what was, why would Jesus do that? That's kind of harsh. Kind of weird. Why would he say that and then not do it except unless, perhaps, that I misunderstood what he meant when he said soon. Why would he even write it this way to begin with? I mean, think about it. He could have laid the whole plan out for everybody. But verse 1, if you've actually got a King James, it actually says he sent and signified it. Sign, the word signs in it. The signification of that, the signs, he, he did do it in signs. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think that number one is that it, when you and I are, when we're reading this, there's a poetry to this that evokes some emotions in us. If he would have just said, oh, there's going to be a great world leader, ah, yeah, that's good. But when it's a beast coming out of the sea, it evokes emotion in us. It's a storyteller. Jesus was a storyteller, and it allowed us, when he told stories, to remember for stuff to make sense. And I think that there's, number one, a little bit of poetry in what he does in Revelation. The second thing, and we don't have time to dig into every reason that he possibly did this, and you know what? There's probably a million of them. But Satan is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He doesn't know the end. So if the Lord were to lay it all out, one, two, and three, he knows the plan. I believe it's 1 Corinthians or 2nd. I probably should get one of the pastors in the room to clarify. But it's where it says that he, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory had they have known. Satan didn't know. Imagine his surprise when he thought that he had won. When Jesus breathed his last breath, it would have been quite shocking if you're Satan when he got up again. And when you look at it in terms of what God did throughout history, it was writing out these signs in a way that we would know that what was to come, I'm just going to put Satan, uh, uh, tricking Satan, because I just don't have enough penmanship in me to write it. So you write that however you want to. But when he, throughout history, throughout the millennia, was laying out the plan, starting with Eve in the garden, saying that her seed will bruise, her heel will bruise your head, speaking to Satan, he's going, uh, what does that mean? Through her seed, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he would do things crazy like trying to kill all of the Jewish people because he thought, well, if Messiah is going to come through that line, then i got to kill them all. And then that takes care of the whole thing because he clearly didn't know which one. And gang, that's happening to this day. When Ahmadinejad is doing what he's doing, when the anti-Semitism that is on the rise in Europe, and it is, there's a reason for that. Because Satan knows that Jesus said, I'm going to come back to a literal kingdom, to a literal mountain, the literal amount of olives. I'm going to put my foot down there. I'm going to split it in half. The temple, if there are no Jewish people left, then there is nothing for Jesus to do. And if he broke his word to the Jewish people, then he could certainly break his word to us. This is from time immemorial. 
So he would say to them, to John, hey, write this letter, that I'm coming soon. (laughs) And now it is 2,000 years later. You know, we're not the first people to think of this, by the way, to be freaked out by the fact that, that, uh, gosh, it's been forever. Peter would write that letter just a few decades after Jesus' departure. He would write an epistle and he would say, hey, you know, God's not slow, 2 Peter 3, as some understand, you know, slowness. But with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He's, He's being patient. He's not slow. And when you understand the theory of relativity, which Einstein purported in 1916, it says that at the speed of light, that time slows down to the point where you don't age anymore. God says, I am, Jesus, I am light. I'm the light of the world. He's moving at light. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. If you've been around for a trillion years, which God has been, be around for another trillion, 2,000 years, that's just a few days. Jesus was his first wedding. Anybody remember what his first miracle was? Anyone? Water into wine. It was at a, at a wedding. And if you read that in, I think it's the book of John, chapter 2-ish. It was on the second day. The third day of the wedding is when he came. Interesting, right? On the third day of the wedding, he came and he does what? He gives them wine and brings them joy and celebration on the third day. He would rise again from the the tomb on the third day, the morning of the third day. The Samaritans, I think it was in John as well, begged him, please stay with us. He said, I'll be with you for two days. On the third, I've got to go on. He said, basically saying for two days he could be with the the Samaritans, which were a picture of the world, a picture of the Gentiles, a picture of us. But on the third day, it was 2,000 years ago, a day is like 1,000 years, 1,000 years is like a day. We are entering the, the morning of the third day. Does it mean he's coming? I don't know. Just interesting when you think about it. Now that said, if the only reason that I'm in the book of Revelation is to try to figure out whether or not Condoleezza Rice is the Antichrist, I'm completely missing the point. He says in verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus. It's the moment of the, oh, that's the thing. That's him. That's The disciples were... They'd gotten the picture of who he was as the suffering servant. Again, when you look at the signs of the way that Jesus set it all up, the way that the Father set it up from time immemorial, was you look in the Old Testament, there are two narratives of the Messiah. There was the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, that is, he would be bruised and beaten. And then there would be the conquering king, Ezekiel and Daniel and you can't really blame them for missing it. Like, well, there's two of them. Peter draws his sword in the garden. Is it now I'm going in? Because they were waiting for that. So they got it figured out that the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing was about the inside and changing us on the inside. But what Jesus is doing, I believe in the book of Revelation, was reminding John that that other storyline, story arc in the Old Covenant, is still true. That there is a conquering king, the suffering servant, the conquering king. They're the same Jesus. I was thinking about it this week in Bassanio. I hope you don't mind this. But I don't know if you guys spend any time around Tim Bassanio, but you should. There are, when I first met Tim, I meet Tim, this, the artistic guy that had a Volvo, that had art and painting and was creative and hung out with the real hip dudes in Houston and 
So that's Tim Bassanio, the artsy guy. And then I meet Tim Bassanio, the guy that loads up the Airstream trailer with his wife and does the world's largest yard sale every year. And then you meet Tim Bassanio that'll sit up in a tree with a bow and arrow for ever to shoot deer. I don't know if he drinks the blood or not, but he, he's, <laughs> but he might. He told the story of being stalked by a large cat in and if, if, he's a bow hunter, so he's got like just tons of gear. Now, if you also know Tim, you know that he's a, you know he's a, you know he'll he'll pack heat uh, when, where where he goes. It's just he's you know southern guy. That's what they do. And but the the cat is stalking him, and he's telling the story. He's playing a recording of the what the, the cat sounds like, and like, dude, why didn't you just shoot him? And he's like, well, I, you know, I'd have to get my flashlight in my mouth and get the bow up. And I'm like, no, no, your pistol. Why didn't you? I'm like, well, I don't carry when I go into the woods. What? <laughs> he says, well, I don't feel afraid there. <laughs> I'm like, well, what are you talking about? I just thought that was a fascinating layer to Tim. Like, <laughs> and maybe he's right. <laughs> he's never had a Bigfoot sighting either, FYI. I've asked him. <laughs> That's all Tim Bassanio. Any one of those are a description of Tim, and he's amazing. Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus the conquering king. They're all Jesus. The danger of this whole red letter movement thing that has been going around, that we're just going to do the red letters of Jesus, is it says it devalues the rest of Scripture. It just says that, well, Jesus of Revelation, well, you know, that's... Ugh. It's, it's, what, it's what it always has been, which is I just rewrite it to fit what I need it to say. Jesus was the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, and so that means that Jesus, who himself quoted the Old Covenant hundreds of times, said that there was value in that. The Bible actually tells us we need to learn to rightly divide the word, but it doesn't say that we need to dump half of it away. The Bible college that I went to, there was actually a, a teacher that stood up and opened, he held the Bible up and pulled the old half of it, you know, old covenant half of it away and said, you don't need to worry about any of this. This is the new stuff. You need to be here. If you've done that, it, then Revelation could be extremely confusing to you. Because really, there's nothing new here. This is the I see dead people. Oh, because hundreds, by some counts, 400 and some 800 allusions in Revelation that are specifically from the Old Testament. There's nothing new. All it is is weaved together. It's that flashback moment of the film that God is, you know, playing for us here. Oh, this and that and that, that makes sense now. It's all together in one, in one deal. And so... There are 66 books in the Bible. There are some that say you shouldn't actually read the 66th until you've read the other 65. I see why they would say that. And I would see why I was, uh, I was talking to, I won't say his name just in case he'd be embarrassed. He said the first book of the Bible he actually read was Revelation, which could be a little unsettling. But they're all value. And if you've read the other 65, like, oh, this all makes sense now. And so when I see this in Revelation 1 and I see... John, in chapter 1, verse 9, saying, Man, I'm your partner and your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos. By the way, this is, if you're a pastor, if you're a leader, if you're a mentor, I think this is, he gives us such a perfect playbook. I'm not Reverend Tyler. I always know when visitors, if you're a visitor, because you might refer to me as Pastor Tyler or Reverend Tyler. I just, uh, Darren will do. 
We've all been, we're in the same hospital. We're all together in the same great physician. Maybe I've been around a little bit longer. I might know the nice nurses and the nice orderlies and what to get on the cafeteria, whatnot, but I can point in that direction. But man, we're all in the same hospital together. I'm your brother in tribulation, your companion, your friend. And I just love that because, boy, it just builds what, that's what a church is supposed to be. We're there for each other when the chips are down. He says, I was on this island on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and then send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And we're going to dig into those deeply in the coming weeks. But what this, what verses 12 through 18 is, if your John is... This is Jesus, the conquering king. This is the Jesus that is going on right now. And I would say not only to John, not only to Pastor Saeed, who we've been praying for and pulling for, not only for our brothers and sisters anywhere around the world, but for us, is a reminder that when the world seems like it's upside down, that Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. And he would say that I see, I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw, I saw seven golden lampstands. And I'm going to ask you to do something with me today that I haven't done yet on a Sunday. But I'd ask you, if you've got your car in park, so to speak, your brain is in park, I'd ask you to flip it into drive, okay? Because I'm going to ask you to think with me. And when you see that, you see seven lampstands, you see a lampstand, does it remind you of anything? If you're one of the people getting this letter, if you're John and you see the word lampstand, candles, what would that say to you? What would, where would that, is there anything that comes to mind in the Old Testament that it might remind him of? Anyone? Menorah. Tim Goddard. And you could have been wrong and I'd still like you. It's a good one. Menorah. Exodus 25, if you're a note taker, is when the menorah was first introduced, the lampstand. And in Exodus 25, he would say to them, you should make a lampstand of Exodus. You don't have to turn there. You can write it later. Exodus 25, 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. And the lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stern, its cups, And it would go on to say here that this was all to be made out of one piece of gold. And this piece of gold would be beaten. It would be stretched out as they're hammering it into place. Speaking of the purity of what Jesus did, but speaking of him being beaten, him being stretched out. And it's from there that the light of the world would come. In that menorah, there are six on either side. And in the middle is where the lamp comes from. From these six on the side would be beaten out of his side would come the other lampstands, which speaks of the church. It speaks of you and it speaks of I. Jesus would say that I am the vine, you are the branches. Beaten because he loved us. Because he took that for us. And from there, from his side, we could be 
the light of the world. He would say, I am the light of the world, and then he would go on and say in another place, you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world when our vines are attached to his branches, and that's the menorah, and actually, this is not a, a good representation because it was actually made out to be like an, uh, an almond branch. And if you, if you want to have a good study and go home and, and see what the Lord might speak to you, go home and, and look at what almond means and why he would choose that. Almond, it would be the branch that was in the Ark of the Covenant that Aaron, from his staff, that would, be, that would bud on its own. There was a picture that the people there were getting because they're like, okay, I see this. This is Jesus Seven lampstands. And in a minute, Jesus is actually going to clarify and say, well, this is the seven lampstands are these seven churches that I speak of. But he would get on and say, back to Revelation 1, that in the midst of the lampstands, there stood one like a son of man. When I read that word, that phraseology, son of man, if you read that, what comes to mind in your mind? And gang, if you're wrong, like, it's actually okay. I'm wrong like half the time. 70% of the time, it works every time. But I'm asking you to dig onto this because this is, the word of God is active. It's alive. And if you're just reading it as an academic exercise, you might as well go study world history. The revelation that was to John is a revelation that is for us. Son of man, does it ring a bell with anybody? Jesus. It was Jesus' first, it was his favorite, I should say, illusion for himself of who he was. The son of man. And he would be drawing that from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. When he would say this was a, a, a prophecy that Daniel was giving about a time that was coming. And he said that I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. If you're again in John's shoes and the people's shoes that are getting this letter. They're beginning to see oh he's talking about that Jesus. That the Jesus that's coming to open up a can of, of, of whoop butt. On him, the guy that's coming back to take Satan down, to do with evil, that's the Jesus that he's talking about. And it wouldn't feel that way, maybe it doesn't feel that way to me or to you, because I look around and think, man, this world is upside down. And I can think, oh no, the Son of Man is coming. That's Jesus that he's talking about. And he would go on and say that it was one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. I love this because it goes back even more into the, what Daniel, the picture that Daniel had painted. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 5, he would say, and if you want to turn there, if you've got your uh, magic Bibles and your iPads and stuff, you can go there faster or not make notes. I'm, not, I'm going to just go quickly. You can write them down and come back to them later. But for the sake of our time, I'm just going to go to them quickly. He would say that this was a vision that he's having after being in prayer, after his nation that has been held captive forever, it felt like. Praying, and this is the vision that he had. After fasting and praying, and it says that on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. It's in modern-day Iraq. And he says, I lifted up my eyes and looked and beheld a man clothed, in linen, a robe, 
spoke of priests, the priestly thing. And in Exodus 28, it goes, the entire chapter describes the priestly garments from head to toe. That's what John is saying. This is Jesus, your high priest. He's got it under control. He's covered from head to toe with a belt of fine gold from Upaz. If you've been to there, it's a great store, L.A., Upaz. Around his waist, a gold around his waist. His body was like barrel. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His legs like flaming torches in his arms and legs, like the gleam of burnished bronze. And I go back and I read what John is writing. And what is it saying there? He says, the hairs of his head were white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Every one of these illusions that he is bringing up here are very specific. They're coming from either Daniel 7 or they're coming from Daniel 10, Daniel 12, or Ezekiel 43. And for those of you playing along at home, I I put them here for you just so you could uh, write them all down if you want to. Everything that he's saying is nothing new. And so if you are one of the people who had been beaten, abused, tortured, your family had been murdered, and you're thinking, what's going on here? You could read this, and it was in code, so that if you're the Romans, you're like, I don't know what it's talking about. Like a mad Santa Claus with a sword. But not if you're one of them, and not if you're one of us. Because we can see, and by the way, if you're one of these, uh, if you've seen the pictures where somebody tries to weave all this together in a picture, and it scares you a lot, it should, because that's not what John was trying to do. You know, I'm talking about like the weird Einstein Jesus with white hair everywhere and a big sword coming out of his mouth. And a... That's not what John was trying to say. It's like when you look on God, you can't see him. It's so bright, you can't see. the. So this is the illusions that speak to them that say these are the qualities of who Jesus is that speak to me and to you about what I can expect in my life. A sword that would come out of his mouth. It's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth like he's a sword swallower at the circus. I'm always fascinated by that, but that's not what he's talking about. It's the word of God. What does Ephesians say? That the, the six is that the sword of the Spirit, which is, put it in drive, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4 would tell us that the Word of God is sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. When Peter in Acts chapter 2 said that when he spoke, and you look at what Peter said, it was just God's Word, but it says that it pierced their hearts. His Word does that. And I look at this list and I see bronze feet and in Daniel chapter 10 verse 6 I see that and think, man, that's, it says actually that they were uh, in a furnace. Speaking of, I believe, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? There's a furnace that was boiling hot and Jesus showed up in the midst of it. His feet were, because he walked where I walked, tested by fire just like mine are. Every one of these illusions, and you can, I encourage you to go home and just seek the Lord and see what he says to you. But the thing about the scriptures is that when Jesus is revealing himself 
to us the moment. It's for our every day, too. I read over this list and I was praying and like, oh man, these all have these amazing truths in them. And one that really stood out to me was that he had a golden sash. But if you look in Revelation, it says that the golden sash was around where? His chest. Not in Daniel. In Daniel 10.5, it says it was around his waist. And I wonder if... It speaks of something to me and to you, that where that sash is now, it's to hold everything together. That's the, the purpose of that belt was to keep it all together, cinch it up. They didn't have spanks back then, so the priests to tie it up with the sash. But Jesus put it in a weird place. It would be weird up here. Like, why would he do that? I wonder if he was speaking of from where his heart came, where his heart was, where his heart when he was on earth felt for us. It says that he wept for us when he was on earth. In fact, it says in the Garden of Gethsemane that he wept for mankind. He said, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could be passed, and it says that he sweat great drops of blood, and he wept for them, wept for the whole world. It says that in, I believe in John, that he looked over Jerusalem as he was making his entrance in, and he looked over this city and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would that I could gather you up like a hen with her chicks, but you would not. And it says that he wept. He just, Jerusalem. He wept for mankind. He wept for a nation, but he wept for an individual as well. Do you remember the story of his friend that had died, Lazarus? And I've always been intrigued by this because he came and he came a couple days late. A lot of Jesus' best miracles were happening when he was, got distracted on the way to doing something else. We get too busy, don't we? But it says that he got there and he, look, he knew what he was going to do. He's going to raise this guy from the dead. But it says, and Jesus wept, shortest, book, uh, shortest verse in the Bible. John 13. Why would he weep if he knew? I wonder if it's because he knew Lazarus had made it out of this cesspool, this earth, this thing that's holding that we love so much that's really just, I mean, honestly. And I wonder if that's why he wept, because he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry, Lazarus. You have to trust me on this one. That he wept. We have it backwards, don't we? We weep when someone goes to be with the Lord. And what does it say that they do? There's rejoicing. I wonder if there was weeping in heaven that day. I don't know. Because Lazarus had to go back. You'll be back soon enough, Lazarus. Don't worry. It'll be okay. But I think what this speaks of, this sash around his heart is that someday it says that he will wipe away all of our tears. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain, no more sickness, no more suffering. And so when I see a golden sash that's supposed to hold everything together, move from his waist now up to his heart, I think it speaks of him 
holding that together for us, saying that if you hold on, it's going to be okay. And in your day today, there might be a moment where you're just bummed and you're sad. And I believe that I can hold out hope for you just like Jesus did, saying that he's got a golden sash around his heart over the place that he, the dying wound came from, it stabbed him in his heart from his side, blood and water flowed. And what can we do if we're there in that moment right now? I believe that the answer is here as well, that it's in, it says that a sword would come from his mouth, the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. That when I am engaged with the word of God, with God's promises to me. They are my offensive weapon. It's the only, when you look in Ephesians, the uh, armor of God, the only offensive weapon in there is the sword, which is the word of God. It's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between the soul and the spirit. It reminded me of a story of the day that Israel was under attack by the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And the Philistines had cut them off because they didn't want them getting any more resources because they knew that if they could, they could make weapons and could defeat them. And it was just Saul and Jonathan were the only two left in Israel that had a sword. Two swords in the entire nation. The Philistines were surrounding them. You might feel surrounded this morning and helpless. But what is amazing to me is that when Jonathan went up by himself with just his armor bearer, it's recorded there in 1 Samuel 13 that they wandered through the camp of the Philistines. And it says that Jonathan walked ahead. He handed his sword to the armor bearer and the Philistines fell before him. And he didn't do anything. And it was the armor bearer going behind that was finishing off the enemies behind him. Saul could have done that. He had a sword, but he didn't. He stayed home. The sword, the Spirit, the Word of God, that when I am carrying that, notice when it talks about Jesus coming with 10,000s of his saints, and we'll see that later in Revelation, ain't none of us got a sword. It's just him. Because at the end of the day, my battle, it's, it's the Lord's. This is not my battle. The weapons of my warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through the pulling down of strongholds. And when I see that picture of this, I see a Jesus that's telling me that I can walk forward. If you couldn't get out of bed this week because of depression and darkness, Jesus is saying, walk anyway, and I'll go behind you, and I will defeat the enemy for you. That person that has hurt you, that's not your enemy. Satan is your enemy. People that have done mean and cruel things to you, they're hostages to the enemy, Satan. In what war do we shoot the hostages? The enemy is Satan. Tomorrow, if that's you and you think, I just can't do this, I encourage you to get up and to start walking with the only weapon you've got that's offensive, and that is the Word of God, to find promises in there that are 
promises that speak to you. If nothing else, just know that, hey, there is a Jesus who's the word of God that's walking right behind you, taking him out for you. And all you have to do is just start the march. If he's called you to do something crazy, to move to another country, to calls you to just go tell about Jesus to somebody that you just don't want to talk about. There's a Jesus with you with a sword of the word of God that's going in. It's coming out of his mouth because I believe that there's something to the idea of speaking it out loud. They didn't have books. They didn't have iPads. They had to speak it out loud because it was one of the only ways that they could retain it. When we speak it out loud, though, there's something that happens that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by I wonder if what that really means is by us when we read out loud, when we're saying, when you're in your car and you could, you know, look, I'm depressed, I'm turning on 107.5, turn it off. Try it tomorrow, just turn it off. I can't do this today, this is, there's so much drama at the office, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This sickness is over coming by me, by his stripes I am healed. When John would use this, specifically Daniel 10, if you read the whole chapter, it says that Daniel had prayed and that finally on that 24th day, this is when this vision appeared of this guy, but he says this, he says, I came the day you prayed was already on the move. You're saying, I don't see any difference. And I'm telling you, Aslan is on the move. That behind the scenes, in the world that is more real than our world today, that Jesus is on the move. He said, but this happened and the prince of Persia withheld me. I'm going back to there, but I'm going to give you this revelation. In the tribulation that you might be in today, Might you take a cue from Daniel? Might you take a cue from John? Might I take a cue from them and not be bitter or not just, you know, I'm done with that. Getting back in the car, I'm going to turn whatever on. I'm going to just disconnect. And I'm not trying to dump any sort of guilt. I'm just saying, hey, you have a finite amount of time. That might be me. You have a finite amount of time in every day and you get to decide what you're putting in there inside of here, inside your eyes and the soul, why don't we go with the word of God and know that even though it doesn't seem like anything has changed, that, oh, there's stuff going on. I promise you, the day that you, that it came into your mind to pray, to seek knowledge is what it says there, to seek what's going on, I started moving at that point. The day you prayed, I don't care if it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, for Abraham, it was 25 years. God is on the move. And if you're one of these people getting this letter 2,000 years ago, I'm getting this letter today saying, man, I've been praying for some stuff. It doesn't seem like anything's changed. I can rest in the idea that God is on the move, that I've got a Jesus who loves me. That white hair speaks of Isaiah 11. He says that your sins will be white. They were scarlet. They're going to be white as snow. White hair, not because he's like Santa Claus or old and stressed out, but because pure. His thoughts about me are pure. His thoughts about me are, no, Darren, I got good thoughts about you. I don't know what you're thinking about yourself, but I know what Jesus thinks about you. And that's that you're worth it. That you're valuable. 
and whatever else is in that soundtrack, that's not the Jesus with white hair. He says positive things about you, says that he's come to bring you life and life more abundantly, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. My prayer today is that we would all get to know that Jesus. If your favorite Jesus had been that dear little baby Jesus from whatever dumb movie that was, today it needs to be different. The conquering king, the suffering servant, he came because he loved you. He was beaten for you. The stars in his hands, Daniel 12 says that he who wins souls that turns people to righteousness, they're like going to shine like the stars of the sky. That's you and I. The messengers it actually talks about, which might mean angels. A lot of people think it means the pastors. The word is messengers. And it means different things every time it's used. But if you're a star in his hand, you're in the hand that shows a wound from when he was pierced for you. That's a good place to be. Because I'm reminded immediately right where I'm at, which is that I'm with a Jesus that loves me that much. And that is not going to let this be like this forever. He's not slow. He's not dragging his feet. He's not procrastinating. Peter says he's just patient. And then when the time is right, he will appear. And what we're about to see here in Revelation will all take place just like he said. And in the meantime, I get to know that this is a Jesus that's right behind me. The guy with seven stars and swords and his face shining like the sun. His voice, the sound of many waters. As our uh, musicians... You guys have got one more song in you. What I would ask for you today, I ask you to kick it into drive today because I'd like for you to, to know that Jesus wants to speak to you. Sometimes he uses me. Don't miss it when the time comes for Jesus to speak to you. 2,000 years ago, there were shepherds who saw this sign and they made this journey to go see Jesus, this revelation that had come to them of who Jesus was and they made the trip. There were wise men, magicians, magi that made a journey that probably took up to two years because they saw a sign and they thought they wanted to go see and check out and have this revelation of who Jesus is. Zechariah, I could go on. You're like, I know, Darren, you can. I could go on about the people that heard and went to see and encounter Jesus. You know who missed it? The Bible students. The ones who should have gotten it. The Pharisees. We look at them in a negative connotation, but they were very, very respected. They knew the Bible like the back of their hands, and they wouldn't make the five-mile journey to Bethlehem to see for themselves. We get so busy. Sometimes we've got to take a step back, unplug, and turn to see what the Lord is saying to you and to I. I believe he wants to speak to us. Acts chapter 2, it talks about this would be the day that he would still speak to us. 2,000 years. Interesting. The last days, yeah, we're here. They started 2,000 years ago. I know this because that's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. He stood up and said, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he speaks of the last days. We're two days into the last days. There's no sign of Jesus ever stopping to speak, stopping from speaking to us. And I believe he wants to do that to you this morning. Might want to comfort your heart with a golden sash from around his. 
He might want to encourage you to take your sword and to go into battle with the word of God. He might want you to just be still and know. Let his voice be the one do the talking. His voice like a sound of many waters. Sometimes I want to say something and fix it. Maybe we should let his voice of many waters go into this. Sometimes it's better to shut up. I'm speaking to myself right now. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? You promised us that the new covenant would be you could write your will on our hearts and on our minds. What a beautiful promise for us this morning. I believe that every one of us comes in here and we need the Jesus with the sword in your mouth. We need the Jesus with the sash around your heart to know that you've got us in your hands. That those golden lampstands that represent the churches, conduit church, we are a lampstand and we are safe in your hands. Lord, that your eyes that burn as fire not to harm us. Fire in a fireplace is awesome. It warms our souls and warms our hearts. And I believe that it's, that's the eyes that I see. The eyes that will burn away the wood, hay, and the stubble when I get to stand before you. And I'm really grateful because I have a lot of wood, hay, and stubble. You just burn it away so I don't have to think about it anymore. And you leave behind the gold and the purity. Those are the eyes that I see in flaming eyes of fire. Might we today see those eyes looking on us, not in anger or harshness, but the one to warm our hearts and to light our path. In your name we pray, amen. If you need prayer, this little triangle back here, there are going to be some people available to pray with you. If you just want someone to pray with you, that is absolutely available. Go, go there, an elder or two of ours will be back there to pray with you. And feel free as we're worshiping to check out and to write. Write down what he says to you. I believe he wants to talk to all of us today.